Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Russia's war in Ukraine is causing death, destruction, and increasingly hunger. Russia's targeting of grain warehouses, theft of grain stocks, and blockading of grain shipments is having a profound impact on food supplies, particularly in the world's most fragile countries. Global wheat prices are skyrocketing, and it's the fragile countries and vulnerable populations that suffer the most. Bread prices in Lebanon have increased by 70%, and food shipments from Odessa could not reach Somalia. And on top of this, Russia is now hoarding its own food exports as a form of blackmail, holding back supplies to increase global prices or trading wheat in exchange for political support. This is using hunger and grain to wield power. That was European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speaking to the World Economic Forum. More on the emerging global food crisis and what the intelligence community and policymakers can do about it later in the podcast. Tinker Allerlein, Taylor Hayden, Soldier Bland, spot the mole. Quite. Ways and means, George. Ricky Tarr will go to Paris. He'll make use of the appropriate embassy facilities to send a signal to the head of London Station. Something, 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 which we'll now concoct. Uh, That was Alec Guinness, my favorite George Smiley, called out of retirement to catch a Soviet mole at the heart of British intelligence in the BBC adaptation of John le Carre's timeless espionage thriller, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. But as it turns out now, the real CIA, not a fictional version, has been hunting for a Russian mole at the heart of its operations as well. None has been caught, but according to a new book by former CIA officer Robert Baer, a very secret mole hunting unit in the CIA settled on one individual several years ago after which the unit was broken up and scattered to the wind. Bear is here today to discuss the case and his book, The Fourth Man, so-called because three other traitors were uncovered in the ranks in the 1990s, two at the CIA and one in the FBI, while one more mole, according to Bear's book, remains at large. Bob Bear, this story begins some 40 years ago when there was a slew of CIA losses in Russia, the CIA was losing agents left and right. Eventually, three traitors were discovered. One, the most famous Aldrich Ames in the CIA, Robert Hansen in the FBI, and Edward Lee Howard in the CIA that were linked to these losses. But afterwards, some people began to suspect that those losses could not be explained by those defectors right? And so 
people began sniffing around looking for the title of your book, The Fourth Man. Pick up the story from there. Well, what happened in, in February uh, 1994, Ames was arrested. He was sat down and debriefed by the FBI and the CIA. And remarkably, Ames was very proud of his treason. And he remembered exactly what he had betrayed and when he had betrayed it. And he was categorical that he gave up all the secrets on June 13th, 1985. Um, he was at a meeting in, in Georgetown at a lunch. He kicked a bag under the table to his intermediary with the KGB. Uh, he knew exactly what was in it. And he had had previous meetings with the Russians in April and May, 1985. And he, he remembered exactly what he'd given them then. And it was just really chicken feed um, and a, a few stray comments and the rest of it. His memory was very, he was an alcoholic, but his memory was very good. And the people who debriefed Ames walked away with the belief that it was a full, a full confession and, and then, an accurate confession. And then we would later learn of agents who were betrayed by Robert Hansen, the FBI official. Mm -hmm. And some that might have been betrayed is sort of hazy by Edward Lee Howard, a CIA officer who was trained to go to Moscow but never made it. He got fired for personal reasons uh, before he made it to Moscow. But let's talk about the suspicions that arose that these betrayals could not be entirely explained by those defectors. What happened? Well, uh, Ted Price was the director of operations in 1994. And Paul Redman was the deputy chief of counterintelligence. Um, and what they did, they sat down as we have to go through all the material, all the compromises and figure out if indeed Howard and Ames could, could account for them all. And they were very specific. And, and Jeff, you have to remember that there's a strict um, record keeping at the CIA and Soviet Russian operations. A thing called bigot lists. So they know who's read what, they knew who had access to what safe, who saw what memos, what cases were known to Ames, which weren't. And then they accounted for the years when Ames went to Rome and was no longer in Russian operations. They even knew, for instance, who Ames's friends were in the in the Soviet Russia division, and anybody that could have leaked something to him unintentionally, it was marked down and what they knew. It was a very complicated process and, and time consuming. But at the end of the day, they just said there were all sorts of things that Ames didn't know about and Howard didn't know about, about CIA operations that ended up in Moscow. Now, this is way back in the 1990s, but what your book suggests is that the CIA kind of swept this under the rug when they couldn't answer these losses. Well, it wasn't so much the CIA as it was. Uh, it was a matter of deduction that they figured out there was a fourth man, which for the FBI is a police force essentially, and they don't do deductions, they do evidence. They go, what evidence? Let's show me a photograph of this guy doing a dead drop with the Russians. Show me a picture, anything. Show me and a fourth we'll man. It. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you don't blame the FBI. That's what they're set up for. Come on, that's what they do. They look for evidence. That's how they got Ames. That's how they got Howard. They had pictures. Howard defects. Ames is photographed meeting Russians in, in Bogota, the rest of it. So what happened then is there was multiple investigations after identifying there was a fourth man, and one was Nicholson. That's Harold Nicholson, a CIA officer who was serving in Malaysia. He was given up by a Russian asset, very specifically described as being down at the farm, having been recruited in Kuala Lumpur. So the FBI, in order to make a case, has to take all of its resources and they put them on Nicholson. So we have this Nicholson arrest and it it's sort of forgotten at that point. Um, totally, you know, people moved on. Mm-hmm. FBI agents moved on, CIA people retired. And the Soviet Union disappeared. Yeah, the Soviet, so there, the Soviet Union's gone. I mean, who cares about defectors at that time? It's, it's a new era. You know, this, this is a Cold War, you know, footnote. Yeah, we won. Let's move along. One of the most startling chapters or threads in your story, to me anyway, and I was vaguely familiar with it, but you detail how Milt Bearden and, to some extent, Paul Redman, top CIA officials, said, we won, let's stop, let's cancel these contracts with Russian agents. So they, so they decimated our spying networks in Russia, right? Oh, absolutely, they did. We got messages. I was in the field. I was in Morocco at the time just saying, we're backing off the Russians. You can have the KGB resident walk in to you, and we don't care. We just don't care. Um, whether it was that bad or not, I don't know, but that was the feeling in the field. And we just stopped spying on Russia. And, and Milt Bearden was said, look, in, in all fairness to him, he said, let's give me somebody in the Kremlin who tells me what's going on there mm-hmm. or, or a minister, anything, and we'll accept them. We'll pay them. But all these KGB guys coming out, defecting, it's just we're, we're overwhelmed. They don't have nothing to tell us. It's historical. It's the remember, this is the White House that did it, not just Milk Bearden. Mm-hmm. And it was Tom Twetton, the director of operations. This everybody is in the Clinton administration. Line. This is everybody, the- Strobe Talbot, everybody said, We don't care. Stop. Well, you can see there's a good argument for that. That look, we won. They're not the threat they used to be. They're in total disillusion. Their industries are falling apart. Uh, massive corruption, just total chaos. We don't need to spend so much time with lower level agents. Let's just concentrate on having. Uh, a cardinal in the Kremlin, if you will, an agent close to the uh, Russian, new Russian leadership. Let's not worry about some lieutenant in the, in the Russian missile forces. You can, I, you can understand yeah. that argument. Hold on. I was in Russia at the time, in and out, and, and it was, it was, they were broken. I was driving tanks in the Russian military and living in a Russian embassy on the same floor, I would walk past the FSB chiefs every day and he'd be in his robe and I'd stick my head and said, how's it going? We're pals. Yeah, this was in Tajikistan. It was like, what's going on? And, and, and so, yes, it's, it looked like the play, it looked like the KGB was down and out. They were lucky not to be in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had moved on and Francis Fukuyama promised us this was the end of history. And we believed it. I remember having a conversation with a former senior CIA official around that time. And he was saying, I don't know what we should be doing now. Maybe we should be doing more environmental intelligence, spying on, I don't know, climate trends or something. So, yeah, 
the CIA was certainly searching uh, for a new mission at that time, and that's been reported a lot. But let's move along along now to this fellow who you describe was a key to your book and the story you tell, uh, a Russian defector who CIA officers nicknamed Max. Now, he had given an important clue to Ames, right? And then he shows up later saying there's one more. Yes. Now, what, what happens is that, that Max is part of a liaison visit to the United States in 1993. And who is he? He's, he's a Lion KR. He's counterintelligence officer with the first chief directorate. By then, it's the SVR to get into the alphabet soup. But anyhow, former KGB. Yeah. Yeah. Former KGB. He's KGB when he comes to the United States. But the CIA is is hosting him and his bosses. And one morning, uh, Max goes fishing with a guy named Dick Corbin, which is a fantastic Russian speaker. He used to be the National Security Agency. Max and he get along. And Max turns to Corbin when they're out. I think it was fly fishing. And says, hey, uh, your mole, our mole, the KGB mole in the CIA is going to Caracas to meet Koretkin, his handler. And that was enough for the FBI to check Ames's travel records and Koretkin's. They trace him to Caracas. Uh, right now, there's no judge that's going to refuse a, a FISA at all. And this breaks open the case in a, in a huge way. So the credibility of Max goes up. And then in 1995, Max says, hey, there's a CIA guy recruited in Kuala Lumpur, and he's down at the farm, Nicholson. So that's two. And number three, he said, there's an FBI agent reporting to the KGB. I mean, with that record, your credibility goes way up. At the same time, the guy was not particularly reliable. He was very flighty. He got this information secondhand, meeting people in hallways. He was a connector. So no one knew what exactly to do with, with any of this. But the fact is, he gave up three spies. There's never been an asset like this, really. He'd had a couple of good hits. So yeah. the CIA wasn't going to reject his information out of hand, certainly not the FBI. No, the FBI drove this, the Max case, when... When Max first brought up the spies in the 80s, the FBI and the CIA moles, the FBI decided there was a mole inside this CIA. So they 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 pushed the CIA to meet this guy, you know, again, and they did it a second time in 1995. But he was a controversial figure, uh, like you suggest. You know, there were people who didn't believe him, uh, wasn't uh, in the interest of CIA or a number of CIA officials to push this investigation. So let's move the story forward to the uh, creation of the SIU, the Special Investigative Unit, which had some people on it that you knew quite well. And they began a more intense look for the fourth man. Well, Jeff, I knew nothing about this until a couple of years ago. But one day my boss calls me and said, I'm going to assign a couple people to your, your group. And they're going to be working on a project well, not a couple of years ago in present time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was in 19, it must have been, well, it was 1995, exactly. Your they boss calls call, you in. 1995, my boss calls me and says, hey, uh, I'm going to assign a couple ladies to your, your group, and they're going to be working on a, pre a special project. Don't ask about it. And I didn't. I mean, I wasn't doing Russian operations. And they would come in weekends. 
and and they were working off grid computers, which are air gapped, and I, I had no idea what they were doing. All right, flash forward twenty years, and my boss says, "Hey, I think there was another mole." Uh, he didn't use the name the fourth man, and you should look into this and see if there's anything there. He then went to the ladies that worked for me and said, talk to Bob, tell him what you found and tell him what happened since. Uh, and that's when I first got the story. So Jeff, I'm coming at this story very much as a reporter. As you know, in the book, I report things as they happened. What people told me made extensive notes. And as a journalist, I don't come to any conclusions. I was never part of this investigation. Well, you may say you come out as a journalist, but one of your key sources was a woman who worked in that special investigative unit and extraordinarily detailed to you a lot of what the unit was doing to search for the fourth man. She gave me the matrix. Um, the matrix is, is a deep chronology which shows compromises and separates the compromises that could not be accounted for by Ames and the ones that could, the same way with Howard. And incidentally, Hansen, because Hansen didn't have access to most of this stuff. She then went on in, into the late 90s to head a Russia group. So she knew about compromises that occurred after 1994. Um, and she continued as a consultant into the aughts to the CIA on this very case. And now the book, The Fourth Man, your new book, begins to unfold for me like an Agatha Christie novel, a, a detective story, where the SIU, uh, acting like a police procedural, I'm mixing my metaphors here, sorry, but they began uh, looking at various suspects who could be the fourth man. And there's this absolutely hair-raising chapter when the SIU... Uh, gathers together for a meeting to discuss their findings and they name the person who they think fits the model of the fourth man who is the traitor and it turns out to be Paul Redman he was he was at the meeting and the reason this is a matter of deduction okay Paul Redman who had been deeply involved in the mole hunt for Ames before who's a top counterintelligence in Russia hand, uh, you know, a, a, a person of considerable weight and seniority in CIA. And they tell, and they finger him. Oh, it was amazing. At the, it, Jeff was amazing at the meeting. They, they call in a, a lady from security, Ed Kern from the FBI, Bill Lofgren from Soviet Russia division, and the three analysts. And they sit down and Lane has these two big easels showing these compromises. And she comes up with the conclusion that the fourth man had to have been assigned to headquarters Langley from 1984 to 1994. The fourth man had to be, had to have done Russian operations and then moved to counterintelligence. And that is the profile. She never mentioned Redmond's name. She never, she just said, here's the evidence, do what you will with it. We need a big investigation. Uh, we need to expand this investigation. We need the FBI agents to come in and the rest of it and, and look at our evidence. And at the end of meeting, he didn't say a word. He kicked back his chair and bolted out of the room. 
not he a word. Ex- he exploded. He exploded. I mean, he was furious. He was mounting anger at the evidence, mounting anger that that they would suggest that Ames hadn't betrayed this stuff, and he was out the door. And that's sort of the last they saw of him, except in the hallway. It's an extraordinary scene, and we should. I, I want to tell listeners that. The, the Lane that you refer to is Lane Bannerman, who was one of the key investigators in the SIU and who spoke to you quite freely about this investigation. Why did she speak so freely to you about such sensitive matters? Uh, because after that November 1994 meeting, her career was effectively destroyed, as were the two other women. The FBI analyst was pulled out of the group, sent back to Buzzard's Point, um, was pulled off the whole thing. He was furious, too. Um, it was closed down, and, and they think it was a great injustice. And they it's felt very, that there was, this was revenge by Redmond, as they tell you. They characterized it as revenge. As, you know, they, they, they just said he was furious about it, and they went after him. And at one point, Redmond wrote a memo for the Department of Justice accusing them of obstruction of justice, that they'd kept information from the FBI. I should remind... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I should remind uh, listeners also that you've come under some criticism uh, following a review of your book that we published over at the Spy Talk on Substack, that uh, who is this Bob Baer to be naming uh, this fellow Paul Redman? And I pointed out that they should read the book, first of all, and secondly, that this is not your conclusion. This is the conclusion of the special investigative unit and the people who worked on it who told their story to you. You're not naming him as a mole. In fact, you have continued your conversations with Paul Redman and and say in your book that it's maybe not maybe not him, maybe it's somebody else. I'm very sympathetic to Paul Redman. We talked, we talked last week. Um, I told him, I said, look, here's, here's the deal, is the FBI believes you're a Russian spy, this SIU group believes you're a Russian spy, this investigation is current right up until December last year. I know that from Gina Haspel. So Former CIA on. director. Yeah, the former, former, CIA, C- yeah. former CIA director Gina Haspel told you that the investigation is continuing? Yeah, she told me it was continuing. She'd been briefed on it. She did not mention Paul Redman's name. Um, I've met with the FBI. They have asked me what I have. They were simply following up as they should. They never mentioned his name, but they said there was a fourth man. No question about it. And what I also know is that as of four weeks ago, uh, people, the sources of my book, were being visited by the FBI and asked about Paul Redman. So you piece all that together. I frankly have honest, honest, I, I have no opinion on this. I just, it, what concerns me is the FBI and a group in the CIA have made this accusation. So you've you got to sit up and pay attention. Now, some people would say, in fact, uh, Tim Weiner, the intelligence historian and journalist, he made a comment on Twitter that this is like a serpent chasing its tail. Um, that this doesn't add up to anything. This is the uh, rival intelligence services taking out each other's trash. Um, it doesn't mean anything. What, what's your what's your response to that? Well, a, a one Russia group chief told me 
that the fourth man was giving memos of conversation between Yeltsin and Clinton uh, to the KGB, who then turned around and blackmailed Yeltsin, saying, hey, we know everything you're doing with the Americans, back off. And guess who was head of the service at that time? Putin. So, um, so to go yeah, back over that, that's pretty extraordinary that this fourth man, this mole, was providing the Russians with uh, transcripts of conversations between Russian President Boris Yeltsin and Clinton, in which um, which enemies of Yeltsin could use to say he's being too accommodating to the Americans. He's he's giving in too much. Is that the gist of it? That's the gist of it. And toward the end, and by 1999, uh, Yeltsin stopped talking to Clinton. Clinton has remarked there was like a complete turnaround in the relationship. And Yeltsin certainly never described who Putin was, you know, other than he's a good guy, don't worry about it. Um, but I mean, clearly in 1999, there was a coup d'etat. And by 1999, the CIA had no sources in Moscow. The ambassador told me he got better information from taxi drivers in the, in the CIA. So if there was any chance for the CIA to catch Putin's rise, it was lost. And don't remember, and don't forget these people that, that sort of laugh about intelligence, is we had the KGB completely penetrated in 85, 86, and in the years before. We knew what was going on, the Sino-Soviet split. We knew, we, we had a window into Russia. We had a window into the KGB. We could have figured out how Putin is. So, you know, if, if People like Tim Weiner are happy reading editorials in the New York Times, and that's all they need to know about Russia. Then explain why they missed the Russian army was a Potemkin village. And we just missed a lot about that country. So the important, uh, impl what? The important implication of that yarn is that uh, the CIA directly or indirectly, this mole, aided the rise of Putin to push Yeltsin out of the way, to pave his way to the leadership. Well, let me look at this Yeltsin's point of view. He says, wait a minute, the FSB has is getting my conversations through the White, through the White House? They are really plugged in. It, it, uh, it had to have scared Yeltsin. So when Putin says, you know, makes him prime minister, we still don't know why he was made prime minister exactly. You know, you've had the Yeltsin family say he sounded like a good guy to us, but we don't know that's true. Um, so he he facilitates a KGB coup d'etat. And if it was a coup d'etat, in fact, we don't know the mechanics of it because we had no agents. And it's not something you read on Twitter or Facebook. Who tells you that we had no agents in Russia come uh, the rise of Putin? Who's telling you that? Uh, Lane Bannerman, she was the Russia group chief. She said there were no developmentals as well. Those are people we're, we're trying to work on to become agents because those were compromised in 1998. They could see it. They were all feeding us propaganda. So the CIA did not have a single Russian contact 1988 to 1999, not a single one. That's fairly extraordinary. It's an extraordinary book, an extraordinary story, hair-raising in parts. It's called The Fourth Man. Bob Bear, thanks so much for spending this time with us on the Spy Talk podcast. This is one of the most interesting interviews I've done since we launched this thing. So thanks again. Thank you. That's Bob Bear. You can read a critical review of his book, The Fourth Man, over at the Spy Talk page on Substack. Clearly, it's time for another spy movie. Too bad Alec Guinness isn't around to star again. 
I'll say, boy, that was a tremendous uh, version of the movie. Anyway, um, this book of Bob Bears has stirred up a lot of consternation and controversy in the CIA's ranks. There's a lot of chatter about it on, on uh, Twitter and so on. And uh, we may be revisiting this book and this issue uh, in a future podcast. A reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jean Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment with more. Together, Ukraine and Russia are critical food producers, harvesting about 30% of the world's wheat supply, as well as barley and other crops. But Russia's war is disrupting planting, production, and exports. And there are urgent warnings that the results could be dire. Kelly McFarlane is a former intelligence analyst with the Department of State, in addition to being a U.S. diplomatic historian and director of programs and research at Georgetown University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. He says world leaders should be doing more to plan and prepare for food shortages because of the impact on security. He points out that the Russia-Ukraine war is already impacting the behavior of nations beyond Russia and Ukraine. India has now backtracked on selling and exporting some of its wheat reserves. So, and we've seen some of the countries in Latin America do similar things to this. So you're starting to see countries that might fill the gap are getting um, cold feet. They're worried about their internal cohesion, about internal stability, being able to feed their own people, rightfully so, um, but then are, are now sort of clamping down on exporting things. So the head of the World Food Program has said what we're seeing now is a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe, because not only is there the war, but uh, the pandemic, uh, the disruptions to supply chain, rising energy costs, and climate change events. Yeah, that's exactly right. And once the, when the pandemic actually hit in 2020, we had already started to see an increase in food insecurity in the, in the couple years leading up to that. Um, and that was the first time in over a decade that we had seen food insecurity increasing. So you had already were on the downward spiral of food insecurity and hunger when COVID happened. And then as you noted, you know, the, the supply chain issues, rising prices, increased climate uh, catastrophes that were also causing uh, crops to be wasted um, and things like that. And then on top of that, you know, we were hoping at the end of 2022, or sorry, end of 2021, we might be coming out of some of this with COVID and supply chain issues being fixed. Then you have the Ukraine war flopped down on top of this. I have heard some experts say there hasn't been anything comparable to this since World War II. Is that correct? Um, as a uh, diplomatic historian who teaches a course on analogies and history's influence on foreign affairs, I'm uh, reluctant at times to throw that kind of yes out there. Um, but I do agree that you would be hard pressed to find something like that on, on, on the food crisis issue and a lot of other issues, obviously, migration and, and scale of war, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. So food shortages have always been a catalyst for social and political change. It was one of the triggers for the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. um, is the food crisis that we find ourselves in the midst of now going to impact political stability in some places? I mean, the short answer is I'd, I'd be very surprised if it didn't. 
um, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, as you know, you're well aware, as in 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 pinpointing any driver or piece of of, of cause causal action is hard to do, and there's oftentimes oh, there's always multiple drivers of things, but this is going to be one that is going to be there from now and has been over the past couple of years in increasing as a driver of instability. So we already are seeing food insecurity in places like Yemen and Ethiopia and Afghanistan, South Sudan. Are there some other countries that are going to be added to the list? And can you predict which countries they'll be? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's hard to say right now which countries it would be. I mean, you named the ones that we already know of that are in dire straits um, and um, likely will be for the foreseeable future. But I think, you know, the, the issue is that at some point you might start to see places that aren't the Ethiopias and the Yemens of the world that are having food shortages. I mean, there's a reason India has decided now not to export its wheat because they're facing a huge climate challenge, um, especially this year with um, increased temperatures that's going to threaten their, their wheat production this year. So, uh, you know, it could be a place like India that, uh, you know, already has a lot of mouths to feed. So the intelligence community does periodic assessments of security threats. There's the national intelligence estimate. Um, has food and food security been a major component of that? Well, it depends on what you're looking at. Um, I, I think much more so than other agencies um, in, the, in the United States government, especially, uh, I, I think the Intel side and the IC has been out in front on this issue, whether it be the effects of climate change on national security um, or water security, food security, these types of things. The IC has actually, in my opinion, been pretty out front on this stuff. And so is DOD, um, because they, you know, oftentimes are the ones that are called to these humanitarian, uh, to, to, to do the humanitarian work. And they've got a lot of bases, obviously, Norfolk down the road in Virginia being one of them that's being threatened by climate change. So they really look at this because they have to. But you have written that uh, we need a wholesale rethink of what constitutes food security. What are you talking about? So, you know, I briefly mentioned it, but um, one of the things I do at the Institute at Georgetown is run a series of working groups on global diplomatic challenges. And we've looked at a, a number of different things over the past six years. Um, and last year we looked at food security and it became quite apparent that when looking at this, that A, and probably most important for your listeners to this podcast, is that we don't take food security seriously enough, at least from, from a policy standpoint. I do think the IC does a better job of it, of at least putting it into their assessments and thinking about it um, and thinking about possible scenarios. Um, but from a policy perspective, we don't take it seriously enough as a driver of instability and conflict and thus something we need to plan for and create policy to create food security um, before it becomes food insecurity. And that's kind of where we got to that notion of peace through food, instead of getting to the point where either conflict creates food insecurity or food insecurity creates conflict, we can create situations where we have a more stable uh, food system um, to, to, to enable, to kind of take that equation out of the picture. Um, and, but that goes 
to everything in the food food chain. It's the, the whole system from what we eat, the types of food we eat, where we get our food from. You know, there's, there's like four main uh, crops that we use, wheat being one of them, which we've been talking a lot about with Ukraine. But there's also, uh, most of those are only grown in a, in a small handful of areas. As again, using wheat as our example, Ukraine and Russia, big wheat producers, India, big wheat producer, United States. But there's also a number of choke points that if there's a war, for instance, or conflict, or if there's a uh, humanitarian catastrophe because of a typhoon or a hurricane or something like that, that is clogging one of these choke points, then you get into those supply chain issues that we talked about. So it's what we eat, it's where we produce it, it's the supply chains that we need to rethink. Um, you know, food waste and food loss makes up like 30% of the food that is just lost in general. Um, so it, that's what we mean by whole of system. And it isn't just a U.S. change. This would be global. Yes, yes, definitely. And yet, don't you think even if that sort of um, effort took place, that there are always going to be governor, governments um, and factions, uh, political factions who are going to try to use food as a weapon? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the nature of conflict and warfare and, and, and politics. You know, as sad as that may be, food has been a driver of conflict and it's also been used as a weapon of war for centuries. And we, you know, we're seeing that today in places like Ethiopia and other spots around the world, um, Yemen as well. But, you know, that's going to take place, I think. But what we can do through, and, and, you know, and I'm not being, trying not to be naive here. I know how difficult this is. I mean, it was a daunting thing to think about when writing this, to see all of the problems and all of the entrenched equities that are out there to maintain the system the way it is that are going to make it extremely difficult to even move forward incrementally. But I think we can do things to try to, you know, forecast this out. You know, we know where there's going to be spots. We know Ukraine makes up 30% or whatever it is of the wheat production of the world. We know that Russia has been having a frozen conflict there for seven, eight years now, and that they were possibly going to invade again. And that's, you know, obviously the end of last year, that became more and more of a likelihood. What was being done then to prepare for this? That's the kind of stuff where food and ensuring that we're looking at these things comes into play uh, in, in a more systematic fashion. It seems pretty pie in the sky when you have countries like India doing what it's doing right now, protecting its own interests. Every country's going to do that, correct? Yes, and and no. I mean, we've seen that historically that you know countries will do that, but where we can get beyond that is it goes back to some of the recommendations that came out of the report, where you're trying to build in other places to go. You know, this is where you diversify and take things a little bit more local at times where you're not, you, you don't necessarily need that wheat from India. You don't necessarily need that wheat from Ukraine. There's other places you can grow it. There's, there's a more community level things that can be produced. More can be done regionally as well to where if one country does it, or even if more than one country does it, you're not necessarily um, 
there's a, well, there's a phrase I won't use, but um, you know, you're not out of luck. You know, you can find other sources of food. And there, it's also part of diversifying away from some of the things that we are used to eating as well. Um, that's another key aspect of this. Um, so you're talking about up. resilience. You're talking yes. about redundancy. Isn't that particularly hard to do in the face of climate change? It is, but that's again where I think that science and the intel community can also play a key role in this, where the intel community can sort of forecast out and look at different things and help provide and game plan where resiliency should be built in, where redundancy can be built in. And that's where the scientific community and the intel community can work hand in hand. And another thing that we discussed in our working group uh, meetings, um, and, and I should mention that these are these group, these meetings are made up of 25 to 30 people, some are generalists, former practitioners, think tankers, and then specialists in whatever the topic is. So we had a bunch of food security, food specialists, and climate change specialists at this. But one thing that we lack as well is, is knowing a lot more about the depths of environmental degradation in different places around the globe. So we don't really know how much longer we can keep doing what we're doing in places like California and still have it be the agricultural producer that it is. So, you know, people that are used to forecasting like the IC and scientists that can get data and do these things working together in a, in a more, um, in, in creating new partnerships in that um, would go a long way. And that was another recommendation that came right out of this as well was that 70, 60, 70 years ago, a lot of the major new products that came out of uh, the food industry and the new leaps in technology from, from the food industry were government funded grant driven things. And that's not the case anymore. And we need to get back to more of that kind of stuff um, as well so that we can figure out where to build in redundancy, where, you know, how uh, resilient can certain things be. So if the world tackled this and actually made progress on that, do you think the world would be a more peaceful place? I do. I don't, you know, this is, wouldn't be all, you know, rainbows and kittens. Um, that's for sure. No unicorns? No unicorns, as my three-year-old daughter would say, no yucacorns. But uh, as I noted, you know, food insecurity is a driver of conflict. And we've seen that um, there's been a lot more study on that in the last half decade. And there is a correlation. And I think, you know, obviously there is going to still be conflict, but if we can take it, one of these drivers out, then we can work on the other ones as well and try to move towards that. But it, I think it does take out a main driver of that. And it also helps end conflict sooner because a lot of times when conflict begins and creates food insecurity, you have a farmer that is driven off his land or his crop is destroyed, well, he still needs money, he still needs food. So the only way he has to make money is to maybe join a militia group or a rebel group and go fight. So if you're taking away that lack of food security uh, or food insecurity, I'm sorry, um, you know, maybe he doesn't go join the rebel group or the militia group. So it's, it's got fall on effects as well that could be beneficial. Could domestic U.S. politics have an impact on the IC's ability to continue to address this issue? Yes, and I've seen this 
um, over the course of the, of the Trump administration, um, where you know certain agencies were told not to use certain terms, such as climate change and things like that. It's hard to talk about food insecurity when you can't talk about climate change. So it uh, it, it will have difficulties and challenges if there's a, an atmosphere created like that. But at the same time, we have seen the Intel continue to push out solid work on this, be uh, ahead of the other agencies and other uh, branches of government on you know, calling the warning on these sorts of things and doing the work that needs to be done, whether or not it's on climate change and national security, food and water and national security and all these types of things. So I think it matters, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that they can continue down the road they have been on. That was Kelly McFarland, former Intel analyst with the Department of State, now Director of Programs and Research at Georgetown University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. You can follow him on Twitter at McFarlandKellyM. Boy, this thing could spiral out of control. Uh, I was just reading today about a Lithuanian plan, which it says is backed by the UK, to run the Russian blockade around Odessa. I mean... You know, this is World War II stuff. I don't know how they do that without hostilities breaking out. The Russians aren't going to allow some naval task force in to break up the blockade. And Turkey has a role in this. So it's a very dangerous situation. And that's exactly why that plan of Lithuania's hasn't been embraced. There's also talk about increasing rail exports to Europe, but it just can't handle the volume. So. No, it's too far away to the ports in the, in the Baltic region. So this could have ramifications, uh, political ramifications elsewhere, like in Egypt or Turkey itself, because people need the wheat. They need to eat. And when people can't eat, they tend to get arrested and start hitting the streets and uh, bringing down governments. It's happened many times before. So, boy, what a tinderbox. And what a ripple effect. Thanks for joining us this week for Spy Talk. I'm Jean Mazur. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.